Nicole. And I am Rachel. This is the Movement Toward Change podcast. We are using dance as a means to cultivate community and start conversation. Today, we are honored to speak with Elizabeth Sullivan. Elizabeth is a success coach and wellness mentor for dancers based in New York City and around the world. She danced for both the Cleveland and Boston ballets. Elizabeth received her degree from Dartmouth University and her master's in arts administration from Columbia University. She has her certificate in coaching on nutrition from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition and on the science of motivation and coaching from Wellness Coaches School of Coaching. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Sure, you're welcome, it's my pleasure. So could you speak a little bit about your journey from dancing professionally to becoming a success coach and wellness mentor? Or was there a specific event that shaped your career? Sure, um, it's interesting because when I left my career, I didn't think I would go back into anything having to do with dance. Um, I had a good career, I danced for five years and I, I enjoyed my training and I enjoyed my dancing and I, I left on a high note um, in terms of how I was dancing but I left kind of in an ambiguous place in terms of my relationship with the ballet world and I guess um, I mean I guess there was a turning point in my career and that was when I was recovering from an injury so I only got injured once in all the time I trained and danced um, and there are a lot of reasons why I think that that was true, but um, I got injured when I was uh, in the Cleveland Ballet, and then I took that injury to the Boston Ballet, not knowing that I was injured. And the injury itself was nothing, you know, special or whatever, but the recovery process was really interesting because I was working with the physical therapy team at the Boston Ballet Company, and they were just amazing. I had never worked with dance medicine specialists ever before in all of my training or career. And they, they made the process of recovery into its own experience. And that was really exciting for me. So of course, when I found out I was injured, I was totally devastated and I cried and cried and you know, I was in denial and all that stuff. But once I met the physical therapy team and they put together a recovery plan for me, it turned into its own event in my life and it was just an incredible period of growth and excitement around learning new things about my body that I hadn't known. So for example, you know, one of the things that contributed to my injury was, you know, an alignment problem in the way that I was jumping. Another thing that contributed was that I was extremely underweight, which I had been told, but I didn't know how to fix in any substantial way. So you know, working with that team showed me that like, oh, there are other ways to work with dancers. There are other things that, that exist in this sort of ballet world that I didn't previously have any access to. And it, it showed me that like dancers need, at least I needed so much more than just training and coaching and mentoring in the studio. I needed a lot of support and understanding outside of the studio. And so when I when I left my career, I didn't have any intention of returning to anything having to do with dance. But over the years, I, when I actually, when I wrote my master's thesis um, at Columbia, I wrote about wellness programs in American ballet schools. And it sparked my interest in working with dancers again and being in the dance world. And I know my, my mother would always say, like, 
when I wasn't dancing, I mean, I was out for four, six, ten, ten years, twelve years before I came back. And she would always say, like, what were all those dancers for? Like, there's got to be something that you can use that that knowledge for, right? Like, it's all in your head, and you have you have all this experience in the ballet world, and it's just not being used anymore. And there's got to be some some reason that you did that, right? And so when I studied the wellness programs, it it was like, oh, this is why. This is where I feel comfortable. This is what needs to be done. Dancers need to be supported outside the studio, right? They need to have someone support them and help them cope with what happens in the studio, but someone who isn't a teacher and someone who isn't a dancer anymore. And so that's kind of, I mean, I, I don't want to say I created my own profession because that sounds sort of arrogant, but in a way, like nobody was really doing what I decided to do. There are lots of wellness coaches in the world, but no one was working specifically with young ballet dancers. And that was what I decided I wanted to do. I felt like I could make, you know, make, make a mark and make a difference in that area. So that's, that's how I got to where I am now. Mm. So speaking about working with dancers, could you talk a bit about the services that you offer for the dancers and maybe um, touch on the seven wellness principles and the intention behind this establishment? Sure. So I work with dancers in two ways. Um, One way is that I go into schools, like a school will book me to come and do a workshop And I will, I mean, I have a kind of standard introduction to wellness for dancers workshop that I do. Usually that's my first way of of meeting a school. And they'll pull together, you know, usually all of their pre-professional levels will come and sit in the studio. Sometimes their parents will come and then I will come and deliver this this lecture um, where I sort of introduce you know, some of the principles that are in the seven, which I'll talk about in a second. So that's the first way that I, you know, get introduced to dancers and their schools is by coming and giving a talk. Um, nowadays, those are happening on Zoom. So uh, that's, that's different and, and kind of cool in a way because um, I've been able to work with schools that are, you know, in Europe in a way that is, you know, we've always talked about doing, but the idea of flying me out there and putting me up is like such an investment, you know. So Zoom has opened up possibilities of talking to other schools, which has been pretty great. And the other way I work with dancers is one-on-one. So I offer coaching sessions, actually coaching programs where dancers will sign up to work with me for, you know, somewhere between three, three and six months. And we do all of our sessions on the phone. And um, if they live in New York City or near New York City, uh, we'll try to do some in-person, you know, meetups just to have that kind of personal connection. And then I come and see all of their performances and things like that for dancers that, that live near me. Um, the seven principles, I basically I created them when I, when I opened up my coaching practice, which was at this point, you know, 11 years ago. Um, and I was trying to think of the, all the areas of a dancer's well-being that need to be addressed in order for her or him to, you know, to feel good, right? To feel like they're, they're balanced and they're being taken care of and they're talking about the things that are important to them. So I'll just take you through those quickly. Um, mental fitness and performance preparation. Mental fitness is probably the, the area where I do the most work which to me was a surprise. I expected to do a lot more work in nutrition and diet, 
um, which is the third area. But mental fitness is, it's really all the mind management stuff that goes on uh, for dancers. So everything from, you know, being extremely nervous about being corrected to being extremely frustrated about never getting corrected, right? Like, and looking at yourself all day with that critical eye and, and trying to not be hard on yourself and beat yourself up. So, you know, mental fitness encompasses the area of work that most people come to me for, dancers struggling with anxiety, low confidence, low self-esteem, um, perfectionism, and inability to just let things go and not ruminate. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's also one of my favorite areas to work in because it, it's makes such an impact when dancers start to make choices about what they think about and let go of things that aren't working for them. So mental fitness, performance preparation, which is just what it sounds like really getting specific about what's going on for them in performances and where they, what they want to work on, whether it's mental or physical, um, body image, which is connected, of course, to nutrition and diet, helping dancers just cope with having to stare at themselves all day long in a mirror and also holding in their minds that ideal dancer body, which, you know, is so unattainable for most people. Um, injury management is about two main things. The first one is helping dancers find their voice when they are injured so that they can speak up and tell their teachers and peers what's going on with them and then seek, um, you know, care, get diagnosed and get treatment. And the second one is just to help dancers when they are injured, manage that process. Like I said, for me, that was hugely transformational in the way I thought about myself as a dancer. And it can be such an incredibly positive thing to go through, which sounds crazy. No one wants to be injured, but if you handle the management of your injury and the recovery process in the right way, it actually, it actually can really change the way you dance and who you are for the better. So I'm, I'm really big on, you know, sometimes dancers will say they're ready to work with me and then all of a sudden they get injured and they'll send me a message that says, well, now I'm injured. So I think I'm going to hold off on working with you until I'm better. And it's like, no, no, no. Like this is the perfect time to get into this work, right? Because this is when you need that support to get you through the recovery process and come out the other side. Um, and the last two areas I work in, these kind of pillars that I've, that I've defined as pillars of wellness are academics and future success. So almost all the dancers I work with are still in school. They haven't graduated from high school yet. Um, and something that no one really talks about that much in the studio is how do you balance your academic work with your dance commitments and your schedule? And it's, it's incredible what these dancers are doing, you know, because the two of you have done it as well, but like the schedules, just trying to get all of your academic work done, getting your exams and projects, and then being in the dance studio somewhere between like 15 and 30 hours a week, which is just, is such a huge game. It's like a juggling act of trying to keep everything in the air. So we talk a lot about that. And then the last thing is future success. And I put this in there because it surprises me that still today, the definition of success for a young pre-professional dancer continues to be extremely narrow. It's primarily focused on getting a job. And like, if you get a contract, you're a success. And if you don't, well, oh well, you know, too bad for you. Um, and I just think that that's crazy. In this world that we live in, there are so many ways that dancers can be successful, whether they decide to go 
to college into a dance program or to college without a dance program, or they choose to go off and study something completely separate from dance, or they, you know, get that contract and actually do the sort of traditional, you know, career path. So I'm really big on expanding the definition of what success looks like for a young dancer in training. I think it's really, really important. Thank you. Yeah. So you spoke a little bit at the beginning towards mental fitness and body image, and I know dancers face comments about their appearance. Um, How can we be more resilient to these comments so that we're less affected by them and then maintain a healthy body image within a field where there are constantly critiques and consistent focus on the body? Yeah, it's really, really hard, right? It's really challenging. Um, I think there, there are two main things that I work on with dancers when it comes to body image and, and criticism, you know, comments coming from the outside about their bodies, especially. Um, the first one is that it requires a commitment to managing your environment, right? Everybody likes to think that they are not impacted by their environment. And it's amazing how many dancers, you know, are like, well, I'm okay with that. Like, it's okay if people talk about my body. I'm, you know, I'm a dancer. But then when we really dig down into that, that, that hurts. That's painful, especially because people are often not saying very nice things about our bodies to us, right? So it's kind of coming up with coping mechanisms to, to manage what's coming at you and, and recognizing that, like, it's coming at me all the time, which is A you know, not normal, right? It's, it's not normal to be in an environment where people are constantly talking to you about what you look like. If you, if you just compare, you know, a young dancer's experience to your average high school, you know, student's experience who doesn't do dance or maybe doesn't, you know, maybe does a sport or something, but like, you know, they're, they're often being talked to about like how they're performing, right? But not like what they look like when they're performing. You know, you either make the goal in soccer or you don't. And the process to getting there is about what you're doing with your body. But it's unusual for people to be, well, you know, if you just had better feet, you'd be better at making that goal. Or if your legs were longer, you know, or if your your head were smaller or whatever, you know, it's dance is, has such a narrow definition of what the correct body is supposed to look like that you, I think it's important for dancers to be able to step back on a regular basis and say, okay, the ideal is not uh, attainable for most people. It's not natural for most people. And it's not normal that everybody wants me to look like this one body type. So that's a really important thing to just like be aware of on a regular basis, right? Because if you, if you aren't, then what happens is you start to think like, well, that's normal. And I should really try to look like that, right? And so it completely shifts the way you think about your own body. So that's one thing. And the other thing is I really, you know, encourage dancers as much as possible. If you have a teacher who, who is constantly talking about what you look like and who is negative about it, is to, you know, try to find the actual constructive feedback in there. So if there's a correction or if there's something useful in what that teacher is saying, that you kind of create a filter in your brain where you, you filter out all the sort of personal stuff and, and, and criticisms that aren't useful and you take out, you know, the little bits of jewels here and there, right? Like the little bits of constructive um, criticism or actual corrections and feedback. I mean, that's very hard to do. And if, if for teachers who are overly critical and really, really giving a dancer a hard time about her body, 
I mean, these are conversations that we have over a long time in a, in a coaching, um, in a coaching program, but usually sometimes it's best to try to find another teacher, you know, somebody who can, who has more of a focus on the process and less of a focus on your body, what you have and what you don't have. Um, yeah, it's, it's not easy, but it's a constant, it's kind of a constant engagement with recognizing that the environment is skewed and strange and like, what do you, what do you do with yourself, right? How do you work with what you have, get really engaged in your own process inside of the body that you do have and learning how to work with your own feet and your own legs and your own turnout and your own movement quality and making that the best that it can be without getting too wrapped up in the form that it's in, right? Focusing on what you're doing, not just what you look like. I think that that component of really thinking like, being aware of the environment that you're in is super important and not just automatically hearing a comment and thinking, Oh, I must change the way I look. Or I think as dancers, when we hear, when we get a correction or we get, we get feedback, we automatically think we must adhere to a hundred percent of, you know, what we're doing. Cause we're very, tend to be very studious. We want to please the teacher. We want to listen, but kind of like almost reconsidering, like, is this comment useful? Is this comment going to help me move forward or, is this something I kind of just need to politely acknowledge, but kind of brush off when we return home? Absolutely. And one, you touched on something important, and that is that a lot of dancers, it's the kind of personality type that, and I'm generalizing here, but there is a personality type that gets drawn to dance. And, and it's, a, it's a type A, self-disciplined, self-motivated, self-driven, people-pleasing kind of person, right? Who wants to do what other people tell them. Um, I always tell this funny story that my sister and I started ballet around the same time. She's 18 months younger than me. And my sister is not, not someone who follows authority, just not interested. And I mean, she was in that class for like, I think a week or two. I mean, and she was little, she was six. So she was like, no, I'm, this is not for me. You know, like just not interested in doing what she was told, but I love doing what I was told. Like that totally appealed to me. So the reason that's important is that when you have that personality, you can be very reactive, right? You immediately are like, yes, how can I do that? How can I, how can I achieve that thing? And I think one of the things, you know, I challenge my dancers and when we work together is like, just press pause for a second, right? And just think, is this for me? Is this good for me? Is this important? Do I really need, right? And just asking those questions, having that same critical thought process about the feedback that comes at you that you would have about your own image in the mirror when you're trying to fix things, right? Like it's, it's a two way street and you get to decide what's going to serve you and what, what kind of feedback is going to help you and move you forward. And what kind of feedback is just going to stall you or create a bigger obstacle for you. Speaking of obstacles um, within the profession, there can be a lot of competition and how, how can a dancer reframe this sort of, competition so that it's something positive to promote healthy growth to to use as a source of motivation yeah it's a good question um i i mean i'm really big on process like personal process and so i feel and i have seen that this can be true for for dancers that competition and being competitive is really a choice like you can opt out 
which most people are like, what? I can opt out. You can totally opt out of the competitive vibe happening in your studio. And if you think about it, if you're dancing, if you're dancing for yourself, if you, when you get into the studio, you have set goals that you're working on and you have a process and you're like, I'm all about like getting into my body and getting into my head and thinking about my goals and, and being in my process. Then what other people are doing or not doing is completely irrelevant. <laughs> like it has no bearing on you. And so that's what I mean by opting out. I mean, I think, I think again, we, no dancer exists in a bubble, although Zoom is certainly putting that to a test. But, you know, when you're in a studio and you're surrounded by your peers and they're being competitive, of course you feel that you're in a competitive environment and you feel that you either want that or you don't want that, right? Because again, you're a product of your environment, you're immersed in your environment, and you can't just go, oh, I, I refuse to acknowledge that. But you, so most people do get caught up in that, right? And so you, I mean, you can find ways to be healthy in your competition, right? You can, you can find ways to look at other dancers and say, you know, I'm not going to compare myself to these dancers, but I'm going to look at what they're doing and sort of, I want, maybe you want to learn from them. How are they doing that? How is that dancer managing to make that combination look so much smoother and, and nicer than I am? I'm going to look closely at how she's moving her body and what she's doing to see if I can learn from that, right? That's one thing to try is like, is the how question. How is she making it happen? But I think it, it really comes down to, you know, the, the amount of comparing that any one dancer wants to do between herself and someone else. And I generally have seen through the years that comparisons do not accomplish what we think they accomplish, you know, and comparisons I think are, are kind of at the root of competition, right? Saying they're doing this and I want to do that. And so I'm going to try to, you know, work harder and make that happen. If you can compare yourself to other people and find motivation in that, that is positive, productive motivation, that's great. But it's pretty hard to do. Most of us, when we compare ourselves to someone else, we come out on the bottom, right? We're, we're less. We get the short end of the stick. And that's just human nature. We don't tend to compare ourselves to people that we're better than. We tend to compare ourselves to people that we're worse than out of some kind of misguided idea that this is going to help us be motivated. So I would say, I, I'm going to kind of skirt your question and say, like, I think people should opt out of competition unless it fuels them in a positive, productive way. They should just say to themselves, I'm going to focus on myself. I, I need to get into my own process. I need to set my own goals and be better than me, right? Focus on being a better dancer than I was two days ago or two weeks ago or two months ago rather than spending too much energy looking around at other people, because ultimately that, that becomes a huge distraction from your own work. Yeah. I just, I really like the idea of learning from other people and seeing like, how are they doing that? And how can I do that too, without comparing yourself and starting to feel like you need to be exactly like them or trying to be better than them and just kind of taking their technique and learning. I also yeah. see this reoccurring theme of, um, looking inwards more often than looking out like what are my needs what do i need to do to move forward and what outside sources are helping me to achieve that and which ones aren't yeah and a lot of this like i mean 
even in college, right? Like I'm working with dancers generally between like 13 and sort of 18, but sometimes I work with college dancers as well. And like, these are also the years in which you're becoming an adult, right? So even for people who aren't dancing, like these are years when you're doing a lot of comparisons, you're highly influenced by your peer group. If your teachers tell you to do something, unless you're, you know, an, an, an anti-authoritarian, you know, like my sister, you know, then you're, you're, you want to do those things, right? You, you're very responsive in this age, in this age range. And so, and that's all fine. It's part of like growing up and becoming an adult, but to say like, Oh, um, you know, everyone's just going to sit back and just, and just let this dancer sort of deal with this. The culture of dance is so strong. And so, I mean, I don't mean it's not normal in a, in like a negative way necessarily, but like there are things about it that for a young person to say, Oh, that's totally normal that people expect that of me. Like that's not okay because it's not totally normal, especially when you're looking at body type, right. And at the kinds of things that dancers bodies are asked to do, like, you know, some people have a dancer's body. It just does stuff. It's, it's not a huge task. It's not, it's not horrible for them to try to do some of the ballet technique or modern technique that they're asked to do. But most dancers have a lot of difficulty, right? It's very hard to make your body do those things. And I think it's okay to have a message in that environment that's like, this is going to take time, guys. Like, this is a really lengthy process to get you from you know, your first dance class to a level of proficiency where you feel really comfortable is just going to take a long time. And I found that, you know, some teachers are really great at that and they're really good at process and they're good at not putting pressure on their dancers, but just as many teachers are not good at that. They want results and they want them now. And if you aren't getting results, it's your fault. You're not working hard enough. And that's just, that's not true. I mean, I have never met a dancer when I was a dancer, when I was a professional, and as a coach, I have never met a lazy dancer. <laughs> they just, they don't exist. They weed out, right? As they get further along in their training, the lazy dancers, they, they stop. They're like, hey, I, I don't want to do this work. It's too hard. So like everybody's already working so hard. It's not a matter of working harder or caring more or being more passionate. It's like, it's a journey. It's a process. And instead you have to, I think, be patient and sort of sit back and say like, you know, step forward in your body and in your technique and in your approach, but step back in terms of, you know, being hard on yourself and, and beating yourself up and expecting perfection every day. And I think finding that balance is really hard. So for me, that's where I feel like I, I come in to remind people like, Hey, this is some, this is something that's really hard to do. It's very challenging. You're asking a lot of yourself. Let's try to find a balance there. Very true. Yeah, so just kind of switching gears a little bit, but I know there's a great deal of decision-making, especially for younger dancers. How can a dancer navigate making choices such as doing online versus in-person school or going to a conservatory versus college? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say that the, the most important thing is to gather as much information as possible. I've been surprised even now in 2020, like how many dancers think that they have to dance right after high school or they won't have a career. Like that's just a lack of information. There are a lot of dancers who go to college and do a dance degree in four years and come out and get a contract and work. And they just don't know that or their parents don't know that. 
Um, or there are dancers who, you know, who say, who look around and say, well, you know, I guess if I want to be a professional, I have to go to a pre-professional school full time and I have to do online high school. Well, that's also not true. I mean, Sarah Lamb, who's a principal dancer with the Royal Ballet School, she went to a normal bricks and mortar high school for four years and did after school ballet from 3 p.m. until 9 p.m. and went right into the Boston Ballet Company when she was done with high school, right? So, and she's just one example. So I think gathering information is a really important part of being able to make an informed decision. And that falls on the dancer and on the dancer's family. And, you know, usually the people that you're looking to for that kind of information are, you know, other dancers maybe in your school who have gone on to do something that you want to do, whether it's a career or, you know, a BFA or something, talking to them, talking to their parents. Um, if there's a company associated with your school, looking at what the company dancers have done before they got to the company, reaching out to those people. It's never been easier to contact somebody who you don't know that you would like to talk to about your future as, as a dancer. And a lot of, you know, most dancers are extremely responsive. They want to be helpful. They want to share their experience. So dance magazine is another one of those places where you get all kinds of, I mean, you know, in the information age, maybe there's too much information, but it's like learning how to gather what you need to say, here are three, at least three options for me to pursue. And any one of these could work. And then sort of deciding with, you know, your family and your dance teacher and maybe an outside mentor who knows you well, you know, who knows what you, what you might be happy doing or has a sense of like how you, how you work in the world to help you make those decisions. I think that I, I, I see that the lack of information cultivated information is sort of maybe the worst culprit at people making decisions that aren't really going to fit for them because they make assumptions. Well, I think that it means if I want to do this, it means I have to do that, or it has to be in this particular order. And that's just not true anymore, right? The order is different now. And, and that's wonderful. I mean, dancers are dancing professionally in, into their forties, which when I was dancing, the average age of retirement was 27. So that's really changed. Um, so you don't have to have a contract when you're 18 or even 23, right? There's lots of time to figure out different paths. And I would say just seek out people in your life who, who have done, who have done maybe something in the dance world, who have seen other directions and can help you sort of gather their information from the right places. Yeah, no, that was perfect. That totally makes sense. Just kind of making sure you have all of the right details and be able to make an informed decision is just so important. Another thing that dancers face a lot is rejection. And I think that ha tends to begin happening at a young age if a dancer is applying to various schools or summer programs. They might begin experiencing rejection much younger than the average um, child or teenager. How can a dancer reframe this idea of rejection so that they're not taking it personally and it's not causing them to kind of move back in their path, but use you're, they're using the rejection to sort of propel themselves forward. Right, right. It is a great question. And I really had to think about this one. Um, and I'm not sure I have a perfect answer, but um, first of all, well, there's a, there's, a, there's a complete reframe that I have around rejection. And there's this great quote. I don't know who said it, but I learned it um, later in my non-dancing career when I was applying for jobs that weren't dance-related. 
Um, and the quote is, there's no rejection, there's only selection. And I use that a lot um, with my dancers because if you think about it, um, it's not that someone's saying no to you necessarily, it's that they're saying yes to someone else. And I think when you look at the dance world, it's such a particular kind of field, right? In terms of what different schools are looking for. Uh, some schools are, are really body focused, right? They're, they're looking for a specific look and that is the basis of their choice. And if you don't have that look, they're not gonna choose you. And it doesn't matter if you went in that audition and you danced circles around everybody else, if you don't have the look, they're not going to choose you. But, and if you look at, if you reframe that as, it's not that I'm not a good dancer, but I don't fit their criteria, right? So they didn't select me. It's not that they rejected me, it's that they didn't select me. And there's a reason why they didn't select me, and it's because I don't look like the other dancers in their school. Now, I'm not saying that that's a pleasant conversation to have with yourself, or you know, a good time to recognize that that's true, but, I think it takes some of the pressure off of the individual dancer feeling again, like there's something wrong with me and I'm supposed to do something to look different or to dance differently. Or, you know, that, that danger again of sort of trying to step into something in a, as a way of getting something or being chosen. And I think that's, that is, although natural, can be the beginning of a lot of disappointment and discouragement because there are things we can change about ourselves and there are things we can't change about ourselves. Um, so that's, that's one thing I think that's important to keep in mind is that, is that the criteria for different schools and companies are in most cases extremely specific and obvious. If you go on their website and you look at the pictures of their dancers and you watch videos, you'll have a pretty good sense depending on your age, right? I mean, you don't know this when you're young because you don't have that awareness yet. But as you get into sort of, you know, the 15, 16 and up, like you'll have a pretty good sense of like whether or not you sort of fit what they're looking for. So that when you put yourself out there in terms of an audition, you are, you are choosing to audition for people and companies where you feel like you're already kind of, you've got the look, right? You've got the look, you've got the style, you've got the quality that they're looking for because that already means you've made a selection yourself and you're not just saying, I'm going to every single audition that comes to my town and just see what people think, right? Um, and the other thing about rejection, I think, is that, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it, it's true. It, it sounds kind of generic, I guess, but it's true that like you will not be selected or you will be rejected, however you want to think about it, across the board in your life on so many levels for so many things, whether it's institutions or competitions or people who want to be your friend or don't want to be your friend or people you want to be involved with in a relationship or not involved with. So it's almost like, you know, it's almost like you sort of, the more you deal with rejection, you sort of start to get used to this idea that, you know, it, it doesn't have to ruin your life, right? It doesn't have to take you down. Um, and that's why I like that idea of selection again, because you will be selected. You will be selected, right? You already have been selected by the school you're in, by the friends you have, by the, the company you keep, people who love you and care about you and value you and think that you're fantastic, whether it's 
you're a fantastic academic student or you're a fantastic dancer or you're a fantastic friend. Um, so there will be more selection coming up in the future. And just to say, you know, focus on, you know, curating your own choices about where you put yourself out there, right? You're always vulnerable when you audition or when you to even just take a class, right? You're vulnerable. You're putting yourself out there and there's always the opportunity for someone to, you know, quote unquote, reject you. But the alternative is to not ever put yourself out there, right? And it's to not make yourself vulnerable. And it's, it's when you're vulnerable and it's when you, you, you take a risk, right? And you try something that you also grow and learn. And so, I don't know, it's, it's part of the process. I would say rejection, if you, if you focus on process as a dancer, which is, was my, would be my number one recommendation for anyone, personal process, then rejection is just part of that. It's, it's in, under the umbrella of my process of learning to be a dancer is rejection slash selection, however you want to think about it. Um, so kind of circling back to injuries um, and injury prevention, how can a dancer navigate being injured and know when to speak up about one? I know many dancers are afraid of being punished for being out with an injury um, and have trouble maintaining good mental health while they're being injured or while they're injured. So how might one navigate that process? Yeah, I think, I think the, you, you nailed it, right? Like dancers are afraid. The dance culture is, you know, changing and has changed a lot, which is good. It's changed for the better in terms of, injury right and and getting out in front of injury most schools and most companies have relationships with dance medicine professionals whether it's a pt or a chiropractor or you know an orthopedic uh an orthopedist so that's good and most dancers in most big schools will get some kind of injury prevention lecture at some point in their training even if, if it's just a summer intensive that's kind of you know, it's pretty common now to go to away for a summer intensive and they give you like, you know, two or three wellness lectures and one of them is on injury prevention and management. And so that's, that's a positive thing. Um, and the culture has shifted in the direction of, you know, preventing injury and then managing it better when you are injured. But I think it's definitely true what you said that dancers are still afraid to be injured because no one wants to be injured and be out and not dancing. But when they are injured or they suspect that they could be injured, they're still afraid of saying something. So, I mean, again, it's, it's, it involves, you know, in my, in my experience with dancers, it involves a real shift of your mindset, which is the relationship between the teacher and the student can't be built on fear. And it also, can't be built on a kind of reward and punishment idea, right? If you're healthy, you're rewarded. And if you're injured, you're punished by having things taken away from you, right? And that is all, that idea is already set up in dance culture. So as dancers, you have to, we have to do the work, right? Of dismantling that idea. There's nothing wrong with me if I'm injured. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't deserve to be punished because I didn't, you know, voluntarily twist my ankle or, you know, voluntarily dislocate my shoulder or whatever it is that you've done. Um, so first of all is removing the kind of blame, self-blame and guilt for being injured. Because if everyone could have their own way, everyone in the studio would be healthy all the time. No dancer is interested in being injured ever, right? For any reason. <laughs> so the idea that like, it's your fault and you should feel bad about it. Oh, and let me punish you for it. I mean, those ideas are very 
I don't know, they're very tragic. They're very movie-based. They're sort of Hollywood-esque, right? And so I think it's up to every dancer to say, first in their own mind, like, this injury is not my fault. I didn't do it on purpose. And there's no reason I should be afraid to communicate to my teacher that I'm injured, right? Will there be consequences for the injury that aren't punishment-based? Of course, you're probably going to have to stop dancing for some period of time. If you were cast in a production and it's happening really soon, you may be removed from the casting. But that, that's, a, that's a natural, non-punishing consequence of not being able to engage in the process close enough to the performance date, right? And so I think even some schools would say like, hey, this isn't a punishment. We just can't, we can't risk you getting more injured so that you can do this performance or we don't want you to perform on an injury. And it's the dancer that internalizes, oh, I'm being punished. Oh, it's my fault. So we all have work to do, whether it's on the teaching side or the dancer side to say injury is nobody's fault. This isn't a punishment if I have to be taken out of things. It's just you know, if I'm going to put my health above everything else, then it means that I, ha I can't do certain things when I'm injured, of course, right? And that would be my second kind of reframe for dancers around injury is that, you know, because your body is your instrument, you're not walking around with a violin. And if you drop your violin, you know, oh God, I have to go fix my violin. You know, I have to get another violin. This is it. Like, this is what you've got. And it has to be your number one priority. And so you, to dance when you're hurt is to say to yourself, I don't value my instrument. I don't care if I get hurt. This opportunity is more important to me than getting more hurt. And I think, I think if you take, if you look at that psychologically, there's a big problem with that equation, right? Like that is not a healthy equation. And if you, if you could, if you could pare it down to something more simple, like I'm going to take your finger and I'm going to slam this hammer on it. Okay. And I'm just going to keep doing that. And then I'm going to say, you know, um, well, if you want to go to the party this weekend, you have to just keep slamming that hammer on your finger. You would just think I was insane. Like, why? I don't want to go that badly to that party, right? Or, or, you know, I'm not willing to put up with that kind of pain for that kind of thing. But dancers make we, and I say we because I did the same thing. I danced on my injury for six months before I had it diagnosed. And I was in a lot of pain. And I did it out of fear, right? I did it out of fear. So we make these, these equations and we sort of balance them out in our minds. Like, well, this is worth it because da -da, nothing is worth it. Nothing is worth dancing on an injured body because dancing on an injured body almost guarantees you a worse injury in the long run. And so that, that's the shift that needs to take place, that I value my body and my instrument because it is how I get to do what I want to do, and therefore I have to take care of it. And when, when I'm injured, that means giving up things that I would like to do because I'm going to take care of my injury. It's just a shift in the way that we think about ourselves and not having it based in fear and punishment is, you know, is really, it comes down to sort of facing the culture of dance and saying, I don't buy into that. I don't buy into the idea that I've done something wrong and now I should be punished for it. I like this idea that, that keeps coming up with, we might not be able to change the culture that we're in immediately you know long term we can make great improvements but if we can't change the situation we're in immediately we can kind of shift 
how we're thinking about it, how we're viewing it, and how we're um, talking to ourselves about what we're hearing from other people and from the, the environment that we're in. You know, it might be hard for a dancer to just switch schools immediately or to switch all their teachers if they're not getting um, support when they're injured, but what can they kind of tell themselves and reframe the story? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's always the first stop, right? I think there are very few cases. I mean, I've seen a few of them in my coaching where the school is absolutely just not a good fit for the dancer. It's just not. Um, and, and the dancer needs to leave the school, right? There, are, there have been, but, but I'm talking like one or two cases and I've coached, I mean, over a hundred dancers at this point. So it's like, it doesn't happen that often. It's very much more frequently that the dancer needs to change the way she thinks about things and needs to change her own approach, not just be saying all the time, it's the teacher, it's the school, it's the this, it's the that. It's like, yeah, but we've got stuff too, right? You've got stuff that, that you need to work through as well. So it's a lot of work, right? It just, it's, it's more work to work on yourself than it is to say, I ditched this studio and I go to this new place. But those issues will keep coming up when we haven't done our own work, right? When we haven't reframed things in a way that work for us then those issues will come up regardless of what school you go to. And I think there's a lot of mental work that, that kind of needs to be done for the dancer. We're always thinking physically about our strength, our flexibility, our technique. It's very much about the physical practice, but so much of it comes back to mentally if, uh, or if we're in a good space and how we're talking to ourselves. Absolutely. The mind is your greatest ally in the studio or your biggest enemy hands down. I think it has, I think people's success based on what I've witnessed and even in myself comes down to like, is your mind on your side? Is it supporting you? Is it working for you? Or is your mind, you know, criticizing you and taking you down and making you frustrated? And then it doesn't matter. You can have all the talent in the world, all the technique in the world, but if you're psyching yourself out all the time, then you can't produce very good results. Mm -hmm. And it shows, right? Like it shows on your face when you're dancing. And because you, because your body and your face are the, are the sort of performing instrument, you know, what you believe about yourself is completely apparent to everybody who watches you dance. So it's, it's pretty important that you sort of get your mind into a place that helps you rather than hurts you. Um, do you have any like sort of final tips for dancers to really be able to be mindful of their own needs. And um, you talked a lot about this, this idea of being on your own path, your own journey, and um, working with your, your own process. I think it, this, is, this is a challenge because of the kinds of lives that we lead, which tend to be very overscheduled and very busy. Um, and it's a lot of doing, right? What this kind of work requires reflection. It requires quiet time. It requires sitting by yourself without your social media on, without your text messaging on, maybe without your phone, <laughs> let's just say it, you know, sitting by yourself with a paper journal and a pen and thinking about yourself, right? And thinking about your thoughts and thinking about your process. And so that's challenging. It's not, it's not, it's not hard necessarily if once you make the time. So I would say that, you know, one important thing that a lot of my dancers find helpful is to do some journaling, right? Away from their electronic devices once a week, 
sit down and just write about what you're thinking about, right? If you've had a particularly bad day in the studio, sit down and think about when did that start? Like, did I go in in a bad place? Was I in a good mindset and then, it, and then something switched? Like, what was the trigger, right? What made me suddenly flip into a negative mindset? What are my normal triggers, right? What are the things that just set me off when I'm dancing? Is it, is it me? Is it my body? Is it that I don't like my body? Am I not appreciating what my body's doing for me? Is it that I'm frustrated by te my technique? I can't get certain things to work, right? If you start to think about these things and write about them, a lot of things then come sort of out of the page and you're like, whoa, okay, here I really have some body issues. Okay, I really am mad at my teacher about whatever. Um, that's a good place to start. I would also say that it, it, it really helps to talk to somebody. So at certain points in my life, I've, I've sought out the help of a therapist to talk about like, okay, my life has become so complicated in these three areas. I just can't make sense of it anymore when I journal, right? Like I need, I need a, a neutral person to listen to me talk and help me sort of clarify what my needs are. So whether that's a therapist or talking to some, you know, some dancers have a parent who they really, who is able to sort of, I don't want to say not be emotional, but, you know, sort of distance themselves enough from their child that they can actually be very helpful and just sort of listen and not give advice all the time. So that can be helpful. Uh, a counselor, you know, someone like me or an older dancer, someone who gets the dance world and understands sort of what you're going through, but can sort of listen to you and, and help you sort of sort yourself out. Um, any and all of those I think are great. But I think the number one thing is to just, is for dancers to say to themselves like, oh, this is something I need to do. I can't just dance and do my schoolwork. I have to actually like, if I'm struggling, right? If you're not struggling, no problem. Like go forth and <laughs> do your thing. But if you're struggling, you know, to set aside a little bit of time for reflection every week and you can start with 10 minutes, right? Um, the other thing is some people don't like to write. And so you can actually, in most phones, you can record a voice memo. Some people just, they find clarity in speech. And so you can record a voice memo of your thoughts, like once a week for 10 minutes. Like, here's what I was thinking about. Here's what worked this week. Here's what didn't work. Here's where I got really negative on myself. If, and if you were successful, here's how I turned it around. Just really simple things like that can help bring you to a higher level of awareness about your process and, and where, where the kind of weak links are that you might need to work on and where the, where your strengths are that you can build on. Mm. So kind of overlooking our, our whole process and bringing kind of like this outside critical, not critical, but this outside awareness to, to what we're doing and kind of taking a step back and looking at how we're reacting, what's happening and how that, that's affecting us. Yeah. Yeah. And that happens, that's able to happen at a, a slightly older age, right? Like, but you can, I mean, I have dancers who are 12 and 13 who are doing mindfulness journals and doing gratitude journals with me. And, you know, there's, we're starting to build that idea of, of looking inside for some information and answers rather than always looking outside, which again, is, it's totally natural to look outside. But at some point, you know, you, you want to start to, you know, become the agent of your own life, right? And the person who creates what you want for yourself. And that requires going in rather than always, always looking outside. Yes, this leads perfectly kind of into our final questions. 
Um, what is the number one piece of advice you would like to give to the movement toward change dance community? Um, change starts with you and it starts in your head, right? It starts in your head. If you, if you are mean to yourself and you're overly critical to yourself, then that's what you expect from the people around you when they deal with you. Um, if you're kind to yourself, if you practice self-compassion, if you're patient with yourself, then that's what you're going to, that's how you're going to treat other people. And that's how you're going to expect to be treated. So when you're in, um, you know, if you have a teacher or a school, a relationship that isn't productive and kind and compassionate, you will step away because you'll know that like, well, there's something wrong with this, right? That's not how I talk to myself. That's not how I talk to my friends. Um, I, and again, like I've said a couple times, like the dance culture is really strong. It's a very strong, old culture. It's, it's got a long history. Um, and that's wonderful, right? There are wonderful things about that, but there's also a lot of baggage there. And I think rather than waiting around for someone else to make the changes that you want to see in your school or in your dance environment, it, it falls to you as an individual to say, first of all, in your mind, I'm not happy with something, whatever that is. I'm not happy with, you know, my own negative self-talk, or I'm not happy with, you know, the fact that there aren't enough black ballet dancers or whatever, right? Like you say to yourself, what is it that isn't working for you about this culture? And then you have to do something about it, right? You want to be the person that starts to create some kind of change, however small. And I think if you can start with inside yourself and then look outside yourself, you know, what can you do and how can you make your dance world work better, not just for you, but for everybody around you, right? I mean, if you are, if you are nicer to yourself and more compassionate and more focused on your own process, that will impact the mood in the studio. If you're competitive and you're angry and you're upset all the time, that impacts the energy in the studio, right? So sort of recognizing that like what you're doing has a big impact on your environment and your environment has an impact on you. So trying to like, trying to make that change happen yourself rather, rather than sort of sitting back and saying, oh, it's great that those girls are doing that movement thing, you know, for change. That's great. Yeah, okay. And then you're still beating yourself up every day and talking negatively about yourself or your peers, right? Like, then you're not really engaged in, in any kind of real change. You know, it's so important to kind of take the actions that you want to see. I mean, you can't wait around for someone else to do something. Um, yeah, and it can be small. It doesn't have to be, you know... You don't have to stage a walkout in your studio if that's not your thing, you know, you can do small things um, and voicing your opinion and something. So something like saying to your teacher, I'd like to talk to you after class about some pain I'm having and then following through and sitting down with your teacher and talking about that. That is change. That's different than what you might have done a year ago. And it's different than what dancers did 10 years ago. Right? Like it doesn't have to be a huge national awareness campaign, although that, that would be awesome. Like it can just be something where you're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help my teacher and my school change the way they think about injured dancers by the way I'm gonna talk about my injury. So in this moment, is there a specific quote that speaks to you? Um I yeah, was, this was hard. <laughs> um the one I found 
that I think speaks to kind of the theme of everything I've been talking about with you this morning is a quote by Barishnikov. Um, and he says, I don't try to dance better than anyone else. I only try to dance better than myself. And I like that quote for, you know, obvious reasons. And I think it, it just speaks to, you know, this idea that because it's dance and it, it is a community art form, because it's something that you do in the company of many other people, pandemic aside and Zoom aside, you know, generally you're in a community and it, and it feels so much like it's not about you and your personal process because you are enmeshed in this whole group of people working towards something. And that's really excellent, actually. It's wonderful, right, that it is such a community endeavor. Um, but it can get negative and it can get competitive and it can get, um, you know, not constructive to always be making those comparisons and, and pitting yourself against other people that you don't need to be pitted against. So I think he, I think he just says it perfectly, which is, you know, you're, you're, it's your process, it's your work, get deeply engaged in your own work and in your own process. And you're going to end up being a better dancer. And I would say a better person as well. Well, this was really wonderful. Thank you very much for seeing Welcome. Me. Thank you so much. If you have You're further welcome. questions for Elizabeth or would like to schedule a session, you can contact her through her website at easullivan.com. And we will also put this information in the podcast notes. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you um, so much to both of you, Nicole, for having me on and for for being interested in these kinds of topics, which um, are so important for everybody's development and, and happiness as a dancer.